Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast that celebrates today's historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of nine, soon to be ten, historical novels for adults and teens. Join me and my guest for the next half hour while we talk historical fiction. Writing it, reading it, publishing it, and more with tips about process, pet peeves, and preferences. I'm here with Chris Waldhair, who is the author of The Lost History of Dreams and Doomed Queens. She has such an interesting background, and she's a terrific writer, too. So, Chris, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me, Suzanne. And uh, it's nice to connect beyond my little studio up in my top floor where I've been hunkered down for the last few months pretty much as we all have been hunkered down yeah but it's a pleasant place to be hunkered down your debut novel right was the lost history of dreams which I read and loved and it's it has a very sort of gothic feel about it can can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write that book and how it came about I always like to preface this by saying that I'm an intuitive writer, meaning that I usually don't go into my writing process knowing how it's all going to work out, which is a little scary at times. But in the case of The Lost History of Dreams, I actually had a dream. And the dream was of a man and a woman dressed in mid-Victorian clothing. And I knew it was mid-Victorian clothing because the woman was wearing a crinoline, not a bustle, which would be late Victorian clothing. History geeks, right? And they were arguing over an inheritance in a candlelit room and all there was like a fireplace and it was just very aggressive arguing. And when I woke up, I felt as though I had fallen into another time and place. So I wrote down the dream and I tried to figure out what they were arguing about and what was the inheritance. And eventually that became the lost history of dreams in which I ended up mixing in all these other things that I love, such as... Victorian morning traditions, which I became obsessed with after the death of my mother-in-law, which was a total surprise to us. And I was very close to her. So I was seeking a way to process my grief and Victorian morning rituals seemed to give a, a way to organize these emotions, whether it's through wearing black or in the Victorian's case, they were very interested in post-mortem photography. And so I began researching and one thing led to another and here I am several years right. later with my debut. Yeah, it's, also, uh, it's, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say it's also inspired by the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, which is one of my very favorite myths. So I think other people find it fascinating too, if you look at the success of Town on Broadway. Right, yes, exactly. Victorian mourning tradition, the whole idea of post-mortem photography, it's so macabre. But on the other hand, as you say, it served a purpose. Can you elaborate on that? Well, you have to remember that the Victorians were much more in touch with the death process than I think we are today, in which death is very sanitized and removed from us. Most people died at home. There was a much higher incidence of death per capita, as you say, because, you know, didn't have antibiotics, higher infant mortality, people didn't necessarily live as long, et cetera. But also you have to place into consideration that for many people, this postborn photograph of their loved one might be the only image they have of them. And 
that was something which surprised me when I began researching the whole postmortem photography angle and depth was when you look at many of these photographs, they're actually quite serene. I know that when my mother-in-law died, I was so upset to say the least, but I would not have been able to control my emotions for the photograph, certainly. But you look at these photographs, for example, I'm thinking of one in particular of this father with his, it looks like about a five-year-old son, and they're posing together. The father is looking out towards the viewer as he cradles his deceased son. And there's so much love in his expression. And I was really thinking about that because I, it's hard for me to comprehend that. And then I realized if you had only one photograph, one image of somebody, that you wanted to recall them by. You'd want to recall the joy rather than the sorrow. Yeah. And that made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And a lot of these photographs, they're really very beautiful. But I think that it is a little difficult for us to understand that at that time. To them, these postmortem photographs were the same way that we would photograph like weddings or proms, or <laughs> except they didn't do that. They photographed their loved ones. They would be maybe like a portrait of their family. They would have a carte de feast. And then if somebody died, they might have this photograph. So these were cherished heirlooms that they would hold on to remember their beloveds and to connect with them beyond the veil, so to speak. Yes. And one of the reasons they couldn't photograph the weddings and everything like that is because uh, people were moving be very yeah. still yes and a dead well, person stays very true. still that's something that daguerreotype wrote about in his prospectus that he wrote in i think it was 1838 which when he was first trying to commercialize the daguerreotype he wrote that well you cannot use it and i'm paraphrasing here you cannot use it for for people who were moving and stuff there's too much going on they have to remain very still but of course you can use it for the deceased because <laughs> they don't move Exactly. So what literary influences were there on your writing of this book? Oh, gosh. Of course, the Brontes. Uh, a number of people have compared it to Wuthering Heights, which thrills me because there is a nested story structure similar to Wuthering Heights. And there's all this intergenerational familial stress and resentment, which is a lot of fun to write about. More fun to write about than it is to live through. And also Diane Satterfield's The Thirteenth Tale, which was one of the first novels that really inspired me to start writing historicals. And um, definitely Sarah Waters. I'm a big fan of Sarah right, Waters. Right. Now, it's so funny you mention uh, Diane Sitterfield because I listened to Once Upon a River. Oh, I and, love that book. Oh, and it has a photographer. Photography really features in it. So I, it, I it thought of that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, and we both came out with the same book, with the same with books with the same photographer theme, though, in her book, her photographer is not a postmortem photographer. Right. Uh, and it's later, but I think there right? Was definitely, it's later in the period. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's set in a different part of England. I think she sets it around Oxford. Mine mm -hmm. is set in Shropshire in London. But it was funny to come across that because I always think of what Elizabeth Gilbert wrote in Big Magic about how ideas are like germs that they infect people. So I'm thinking, oh, that Victorian photography germ was going around that time. Yes, and it's like a couple of people grabbed it. Yeah. I yeah. know, except that I, you know, I wish that I, Diane Setterfield, she's all hail, all hail. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> but, I, but I'm thrilled that, yeah. to read that novel and see that she had a similar inspiration. It's a wonderful book. Right. Oh, yes, definitely. Also, you have a very, you are not just artistic or, or creative in your writing realm. You are a really accomplished illustrator as well. 
And that reminds me of your book, Doomed Queens, and the Bad Princess, that or was yes. another one. Can you talk about how those came to be? Those were both nonfiction books, and they came out of my deep interest in women's history. I, another book that I also created, which was even before that, was called The Book of Goddesses, and that was also looking at women's mythology as it relates to history and cultures around the world. So this is a theme which is very close to me, is looking at how women are portrayed through the ages and how they've been affected by history, how they've been treated by history. In the case of Doom Queens, how they were disempowered by history. Yeah. And they all are illustrated books. Lost History was my first book that I did not illustrate, so it was a real departure in that way, as well as a work of fiction. But I always like to say that it was happenstance that I ended up focusing on art first. As a child, I always wrote and illustrated, and I loved both. But then I received a full scholarship to the School of Visual Arts, and I decided, oh, I must be meant to make art. So the writing got backburnered for a while until eventually I began to integrate it. And interestingly, I now mainly write and I don't illustrate nearly so much. <laughs> but that's yeah. just how it goes. I think if you're creative, you're just creative. You just have different ways that you express it. It's all the same river yeah. flow, if you will. Yeah. You and Dan Blank believe that. Totally. Do you know who Dan Blank is? I'm afraid I don't know. Oh, but I, I think creativity a, is creativity. Yeah, he's his. He has a wonderful podcast. You should look him up because he's all about. He interviews all these people who have different creative outlets. He's writers and artists and all that, and it's uh, very inspiring. He's terrific. I always feel that the project chooses you. Mm -hmm. I definitely have felt that all of my books came to me like gifts. And the form they take a lot of times is a similar situation, like with The Lost History of Dreams, it was very clear this was a novel. With Doom Queens, I illustrated it to look like a Victorian Penny Dreadful as a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. uh, I also designed the book, too, because my background is also as a book designer. And I just think creativity is creativity, and it, it is like this, if you open yourself up to it, it just chooses to present itself as it needs to, and I honor that. I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's. I think there are ways that people who are creative in the visual arts, when they turn to writing, it it informs their writing as well in terms of having seeing it on the page, having to create that image on the page, or maybe not. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I definitely think that being a visual artist affects me in my writing. I know that my writing is pretty descriptive, but. Here's the funny thing is that when I was illustrating books, I would also write descriptions of the illustrations before I would draw them. So they, they would inform each other. I think of them as both sides of the brain in a way that one feeds the other. And I guess I'm fortunate like that. I know that a few months ago I was reading about people were talking about whether they hear their thoughts or whether they see them in images. And I do both. I'll yeah. see flashes of images as well as hear like just ideas or thoughts that come to me. Like the title for The Lost of Three Dreams came to me when I was waking up and in that liminal state between dream and, and alertness, before I'd had my coffee, in other words. <laughs> and I just, yeah, like all of us. And I just heard this phrase, The Lost of Three Dreams, and I wrote it down, had no idea what it was about. And then about a year later, I had the dream of the woman and the man in the room arguing and they came together. I was thinking, you made me start thinking about how I, I couldn't tell you, I don't think I could pick apart whether I visualize or hear 
ideas in, in my head at all. I mean, I think when I'm writing, I see scenes, but I also, my right. mouth is moving. I actually talk to myself when I'm writing. I've heard other authors who do that. I, I don't, but again, I'm very intuitive. I usually write down little flashes of dialogue and of description, and eventually I put it all together, figuring out what's what, and it can take a while. So like putting together a giant puzzle piece, and I've learned to embrace the chaos, if you will. Yeah. Um, I've learned that that's just how my mind works, and if I accept it, it comes together pretty quickly, as long as I don't struggle against it. My yeah. first drafts are always like that. There are these little hodgepodges of scenes and thoughts and characters and I do work in Scrivener. I don't know if you've spoken about this oh, before I love in Scrivener. your podcast. Yeah, yeah. Scrivener is the best because you can work with lots of different elements and then move them around. It's I always say it's word on steroids. So I use that. Yeah. And I also am a big fan of making all sorts of, you know, diagrams and post-it notes everywhere and moving things around. I need to kind of see where things are going. Like I'll have a post-it note that will just say like the name of a scene or an idea I want to orient and it works that way. But yeah, it's definitely not the usual, a very linear way of working. And I think that comes back to being a visual artist that I don't, my mind doesn't really work that way. And once I embrace that, that's when everything started to come together for me as a writer. Yeah, I could see that. It's I'm the opposite, but not really. I have to think a story through from beginning to end. I have that. I have to follow the thread as it goes, rather than pulling little bits from here and there. But but I wonder, let's turn to your tarot thing. Ah, the tarot. Everyone wants to know about the tarot. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, I can tell you I've been reading tarot for uh, nearly 40 years. But the first time I saw a tarot deck, I must have been seven years old, and a cousin of mine had a deck in her studio apartment, and I was so amazed by them. She was about an adult, whereas I was a child, and they just seemed so glamorous and so beautiful as well, because the imagery is is very striking, and I felt very drawn to them. But it didn't really know what it was, and it also felt a little forbidden. Not that she hid them from me, but... So flash forward to when I was in college, I had a friend who did read tarot and that's how I became involved. I also had a, worked with a illustrator, one of my professors with David Palladini, who wrote, who actually created the Palladini Tarot, which was, was a very popular deck at the time. I think it's still pretty popular. So I worked directly with him. So I, I have a long history of working with tarot that I, I look upon it. Of course, most people are drawn to it because of the fortune telling aspect. But I really see it as another form of storytelling. And I also think of it as more of a psychological tool, if you will, a more therapeutic tool that it's a reflection of whatever is going on at that moment. So I always say, if you don't like Mm -hmm. what the cards are telling you, find a way to change things. It's just showing you how things will continue if you keep doing what you're doing, if you will. Because I really do believe in that we have that power to kind of shift things. But the nice thing about tarot is that it gives us a way to look at what's going on in our life that's separate from ourselves and it's visual. And if you're an intuitive person, it's, for me, I find it very organic to look at what the cards are telling me and to kind of see what's going on when I read for others as well as for myself, as well as they're a wonderful tool for creativity. I've started teaching tarot for writers and it's a wonderful way to, if you're, looking for inspiration for your manuscript or if you're revising your manuscript or if you're just feeling stuck creatively to really 
go in deep and get another opinion. Only it's in a card deck. You don't have to call up a critique partner and, and <laughs> you know, talk to them for an hour, which is great too, but yeah, it's just, yeah. it's a tool. Everything yeah. is a tool and it's a tool that I think is very powerful. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about it, using it for storytelling? I find that fascinating. So okay. how, does it be, how does reading tarot become a story? First off, the tarot is, has two different sections, one which is called the Major Arcana, which is made up of 22 cards, which is like the hero's return, if you want to get a Joseph Campbell on it, that it begins with the fool, ends in the, with the world, and each of the cards is a different progression of somebody as they mature and grow through life. So there's one storytelling aspect right there. The Minor Arcana, which are the other cards, and they're four suits like a playing card deck instead of hearts you have cups instead of spades you have swords and diamonds or pentacles and so on and they're also like different ways of storytelling that cups have to do with emotion all the elements you want as a storyteller as an author cups are emotion the wands are about taking action plot plot points if you will inspiration Pentacles are about things that are concrete that happen that actually manifest and swords are can be about difficulty, but they're also about the intellectual part of that thought and about when maybe things are not as straightforward as we want and we have to take a step back. If you will, I always think when you're if you're going to think of traditional pot structure, it would be the the dark night of the soul that you get a right. sword and it forces you to look within yourself and to consider what are you doing, where are you going, and how are you going to do it? And do you need to recalibrate your plans? So basically, if you have these 78 cards, like Tolkien says, with the stew of storytelling with different bits, every time you shuffle these cards and you pull out a number of them, you have a different element of story. And right. that's very exciting, I think. So it's a great way that you can spur storytelling if you like. It's also a great way that if you're stuck, you can pull a card and see, like, if, for example, if you choose a cup card, maybe you need to add more emotion to a scene. If hmm. you choose a major arcana, maybe it's about going bigger, tying in more to the archetypes, because the major arcana is very much about the archetypes of life. So, so, so that's it's a tool. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I really love this whole idea. So for instance, this is a for instance, and I don't know whether it's even possible, but say I'm actually in the process of revising something, the third volume of my trilogy, and there's a chunk right two-thirds of the way through where I, there's something wrong with the plot and I can't figure out what it is. So how would I use tarot maybe to help me over that? Okay. I do teach about, I teach a workshop for creatives and writers that I have a number of different readings or spreads, if you will. But the easiest thing to do is I call it just have a conversation with the cards. You shuffle the cards, you pull when you ask your question, and you pull a card and you see what it has to say and you go back and forth until you have a resolution. Would you like to do it now? We could do one now. Sure. I can pull some cards for you. Okay, sure. so what's your issue? I will okay, shuffle my, and we'll see. Right. My issue is that my heroine is in love with someone she can't have, who is a knight, who's of the same faith that she is, but nobody knows that. And, but she has also just recently made a connection with her husband, who doesn't really know who she is. So she's battling these two sets of emotions, but she has also gone, her husband is besieging Toulouse. He's on the side of the Catholics. He's besieging Toulouse. And she has to, she has been, 
she's there. <laughs> I brought her there, but I can't figure out how to how she's going to actually help the people who need to get food in to to lose so everybody doesn't starve. Because that's her hometown. Okay. So I'm gonna pull a card. And the card I pulled is the magician. Okay. Which is about her. I would say that this is very much about her finding resources within herself that she was unaware of. And that maybe could be a callback to something earlier in the novel that you've set up. Because a magician is very much about alchemy, about taking things that, as the proverbial alchemist does, that they make dirt into gold. So what can she look to that she could transform in a way? What tools can she find? The other thing about the magician is that if you look at the card, which you can't during a podcast, obviously, but it, I'll describe it. It's of, a, it's of a man holding a wand and there's a cup. There is a pentacle. There is a sword. It's all of the elements of magic, if you will, as well as of the tarot. So it's about bringing all these things together and so I think that this is something that it could become like a real turning point in her character. I would do it for that. And I'm going to pull another card too, just for the hell of it. Mm -hmm. High Priestess. Maybe she's also going to use this as a way that there's a secret which is revealed to her that she hadn't been aware of that spurs her. Also, the High Priestess is a woman who is separated from others, from men, a lot of times that she's the keeper of the secrets. Maybe there's somebody that she confronts who is a woman of this way. Maybe she's a nun. I don't know. This is so weird. I'm getting chills, okay? I'm getting chills over here. Because or is she, that there's somebody who tells her that she has this power yeah, to transform the situation. This is definitely part of this. This is That is definitely something there. In the beginning, there are these two mysterious women who are devout, perfect in the Cathar yeah. faith, who, who not glom onto her, but who have this sort of connection with her. And she doesn't know that. She doesn't know that she has any of this yet. So that is actually totally cool. And also I pulled one more just for uh, completion. I got the Ace of Cups, which is a beautiful cup with, and there's the sacrament Ooh. of communion in there, as well as the Holy Dove. And it's also about emotion, about finding a way to have your heroine connect deeply to the emotion. Also, I would think about the nurturance of her, like she wants to protect others, she wants to nurture them, literally get mm -hmm. them food, as well as her, the emotion of love very much about that, about this yeah. universal emotion of love. But yeah, no, definitely, I would have that connect. And I should also describe what the high priestess looks like. It is a woman, it's the mirror image in a way of the magician, instead of a man with all these different elements, it's a, a beautiful woman, who is sitting in front of, of two pillars and with a tapestry of pomegranates behind her. Pomegranates, of course, are a symbol of fertility as well as magic. And she's wearing a headdress that is very much a lunar headdress as well as holding a Torah and there's a, um, a sickle moon. It's all these elements of faith. So I think that would definitely be the way that I would handle it. Yes. At least that's what the cards are saying today. Okay, so you can send me your bill after this. <laughs> Gladly, I will. Okay. I, uh, I sometimes say it's, I'm, I'm performing therapy without a license. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's so funny because the place that I teach some writing workshops called Writers in Progress, it's local, but of course, everything's online now. One of the things she, she does for when she's doing writing prompts for the generative workshops is she has a tarot deck. And people Perfect. pull You can do that too. Yeah. 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 I've yeah. done that as well with people. And it's always a great way just to get your imagination started. Um, I 
think that I don't like to say that I don't believe in writer's block. I just think that a lot of times it's fear. And mm. if you're working with tarot, it gives you something outside yourself to hopefully help you get past yes. that fear. It sort of gives you permission to go there a little bit. It's, it does. Yeah. And I also, it's, it's just a reflection of its synchronicity. And I think as artists, we're very much in touch with those experiences because what is creativity but these different experiences of synchronicity where things flash inspiration or they just push us into creating. And I think that's such a wonderful, magical thing. And I'm thrilled that you can use tarot in this way. You can use whatever you want. I, the, I think of often of the, of the Celtic tradition where you would look at the weather as an oracle. If there were swiftly moving clouds, that would maybe symbolize one thing, or you would look at the trees. It's all around us if we're open to it. Mm-hmm. Inspiration is everywhere. Yes, yes. <laughs> and oh, so yeah. is creativity. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned that you do workshops on tarot for writers. Do you have any coming up that you want to tell people about? So yes, I'm going to be teaching a eight-week workshop through the Writer Circle. That's uh, writercircleworkshops.com if you want to check it out. It is eight Thursday nights in October, November. And we'll be talking about all the things that I've just discussed. We'll be talking about how you can use the tarot to spur plot ideas, how you can use it for revising, how you can use it for yourself as well if you're feeling stuck creatively. And we will fortunately have time for actually workshopping manuscripts. When I taught this summer, I taught a four-week version of the same course, and it was a little more compressed, so we'll have more time to luxuriate and to go deep. And it's really exciting to see students make those connections and, and I, I, I see them being very empowered by it because they realize that this is a tool that they can use for themselves. Yeah. Now I'm going to go right. online and find a tarot deck to buy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, no, definitely. And I always tell people like, yes, it's a lot of times new tarot readers become intimidated by the idea of learning every single description and what each card means. And I always tell them, you know what? Trust your intuition, look at the card, see what does it mean to you. I have a handout where I talk about seven ways to look at a tarot card. Who is on the card? Is there a person on the card? Are there animals on the card? What's the landscape? What's the weather? Does it, do any memories come up for you? What are your emotions? What's one word? All ways to start with connecting with mm. these images. Oh, it sounds great. Really, like I need one more obsession. <laughs> your plot (laughs) i know i know i'm really excited i want to end the call and go and start writing (laughs) good i've inspired you yeah you have totally just talking to other writers inspires me a lot anyway oh it is it is it's It's such a crazy thing we do yeah i know i know and are you working on something else uh at the moment yeah i have three novels underway and i you know a lot of it is because you know how publishing is that you work on one thing and it gets to a point that you have to wait Mm -hmm. and get feedback and such so two are historicals and actually three i actually have three historicals underway because there's a novel that i began before the loss of your dreams that i brought it to a point that i wasn't quite sure how to resolve certain plot elements and i finally figured it out but then I have, I'm also working on a middle grade novel as well, which is a contemporary and mm. it's set in Brooklyn and it's a reworking of the Persephone myth. So that's been really fun too. Nice. It, it, I like mixing things up a bit. 
So people say, which one is coming out next? I always say, whichever one gets done first and is out in the world first. Yeah, I so. learned that the publication process can sometimes not as linear as, as one would hope, especially if you're not a very linear person as I am. All right. This has been just so much fun talking to you. Yeah, I can't, yeah. You know, is there anything else you want to talk about that I have neglected to ask you or anything like that? I guess the main thing is just that I hope everybody who's listening to this stays healthy and well and inspired. And thank you for having me. It's been really fun. It's, yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you as well. And someday in the not too distant future, I hope we will all be able to get together for coffee again. I know. I miss all of my author friends. And mm-hmm. it is, is, has been wonderful, but it is falls into what do they call it, the uncanny valley, where it's not quite real, but it is. It's a little strange. Um, yeah. But I'm thankful for it. I'm yes. For it. Can you imagine if we'd all been in this situation 20 years ago before there yeah. was this kind of connectivity? <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. And none of us, I think, expected this to go on for so many months. I remember when we first started sheltering in place in New York City in March, I thought, oh, by the end of April, this will be behind us. And now it's the end of August and there's no end in sight. Exactly. I know. But I'm grateful that we remain healthy. Yes. Yes, absolutely. On that cheerful note. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. What what better time to make art than during a pandemic? Exactly. And and I just wanted to thank you so much for giving me this time. And I will put links and stuff like that on the website when I post this. And and I will let you know when it's up. And um, I hope you all continue healthy and well and that your kitten brings you much joy. Yes. And let me know how your manuscript works out. I will. I definitely will. Thank you so much. <laughs>